Well, gracious Heavenly Father and Sovereign Lord, we do pray now as the speaking God that you are, that you would speak to us and teach us what we need to learn and change us in the ways we need to change. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat this morning. And if you've got a Bible there or a screen with a Bible on it, I'd love for you to pull up Hebrews chapter 2, which is on page 1202 of these Bibles. If you need a Bible this morning, please do just put your hand up. Jeff is ready and eager, uh, as is Agnes, just to bring you one this morning. So you can follow where we're going. Um, So it's, it's page 1202. Hebrews chapter 2, the big numbers in bold are the chapters and the small numbers uh, are sentences or verses, we sometimes call them, and they help us navigate. So it's Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm going to read this passage, this uh, episode that we're spending quite a few weeks on, first of all, from sentence 5 to sentence 9. So if you found it, Hebrews chapter 2, sentences 5 to 9, page 1202. Uh, This is what it says. It is not to angels that he, that's God, has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You have made them a little lower than the angels. You crown them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present... We do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I wonder if you just look with me at the very end of sentence 8 and the beginning of sentence 9 and see the little contrast that's there because it's right to the heart of what we need to see this morning. The end of sentence 8, it says, yet at present we do not see. We do not see everything in the way that it should be. We do not see the world in a way that is right. We do not see. And then the beginning of sentence 9, do you see it there? But we do see Jesus. That in the midst of the complexity of what is not working, we do see one certainty. We do see Jesus. I just want to rest on that little phrase of uh, we do not see for a moment. It means, it means everything's not quite comfortable. Everything's not quite right. It doesn't seem to be the way we think it should be. Have you ever had that question about life? I mean, none of us, for example, I should imagine think life should be free from difficulties or, or free from difficult decisions or traumas. We do expect it. But have you ever thought, does it really need to be this hard? Like, why is marriage this difficult? Why am I this difficult in marriage? Yeah. Yeah. Why is parenting so brutal? And why don't we get a second go at it? Why is work... I mean, no one expects every moment of work to be satisfying and fulfilling, but at least some moments of my career to be decent. And money. And I don't, I don't want to be a millionaire, but such a battle. Have you ever thought like that? That is what he's getting at here. We do not see everything as it should be. We'll come back to that little word subjected in a few minutes, but uh, one way of understanding it is we do not see everything as it should be in life. And I think that becomes most apparent actually when we think about death, which may be a bit morbid on a sunny Sunday morning to think about. But have you ever wondered a little bit about why, when death is so normal, it is so painful? 
There are very few human experiences that are true for every single human being on the planet, aren't they? I suspect you wouldn't even need one hand to count them. And death is one of them. It is as universal and common and normal as can be. And yet, every time it happens, it is traumatic, upsetting, and grief-laden. Why is that? Woody Allen famously said, not the most famous thing he said, fortunately, but he famously said this, the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror, and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. Now, I hope he was having a bad day when he said that. He's exaggerating to make a point, though. Death, death is this thing that we feel is so intrusive, and yet it is so normal. C.S. Lewis uses an illustration when he's thinking about death, but it could also be about life and its difficulties, when he says, our distaste and upset with death is like a fish finding water unpleasant. It is the environment we all live in. It could not be more common to every single one of us, and yet for some reason we don't like it. We feel it's wrong, like a fish saying water's not right. C.S. Lewis then goes on to suggest the reason why that is, is because we were never made for that environment. We were never made for an environment where things did not work. We were never made for an environment where death was a reality. We were not made for that environment. In the same way a fish would find water uncomfortable if it was never made to swim in water. So we find death uncomfortable because we were never made to die. So however common or universal it is, it is not. It is not the design from the beginning. Now, what I want to do is we've got that little contrast in our minds that we do not see everything as it should be, but we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus. What I want to do is take us through this paragraph that I've just read. Simply just unpack it, mine it for the gems as we understand that seeing and not seeing better. And it basically comes in three uneven chunks. The first big chunk is sentences nine through to the beginning of sentence eight there, where God, if you like, is the main character and what God has made. Sentence five, it says that, that he, the he there is God there in sentence five. It's the big he of God. And then this quote, which is from ancient poetry, we know it as Psalm 8, it's an earlier part of the Bible. The you that said four times in that little quote is God. You are mindful of these people, God. You care for these people, God. You made them God and you've crowned them God. It's, it's God and what God made people to be. That's what's in sight in that first opening bit, sentence five to eight. Then there's a short middle bit where we're in focus. We've already looked at it, the end of sentence eight, the beginning of sentence nine, what we do and what we don't see. And then lastly, sentence nine, it's Jesus who is in focus. Can you see that there? But we do see Jesus. And then it says that he has been crowned. He suffered death. He might taste death. Those he's are all about Jesus. Do you see the flow? God, and then us, and then Jesus. Well, let's have a look, first of all, what God made. And this is what's so remarkable. In fact, all human beings this is now about. Whatever spiritual label you may or may not hold, whether you're happy to identify as a Christian or, or not, actually doesn't matter. All of humanity is in mind in these sentences. And the thing he's telling us is that God has made us, not the angels, not even the angels. He's made us for loving leadership and for rightful honor that actually all humans were made by God to lead and love in such a way that honour and praise and glory are the right response 
to the experience of that leadership. We were made to give leadership in such a way that we receive honour just like God. That word subjugate here, which appears a couple of times, doesn't it? You can see it there in sentence five. Uh, He has subjugated the world to come. And then you see similar language in in sentence eight, put everything under their feet. Both those kind of phrases we think are quite negative, don't we? I don't think they're very helpful kind of translations. This part of the Bible was originally written in, in a Greek language, an ancient Greek language. And sometimes it's a struggle to come up with the right English words. I don't think subjugated helps us. It's too negative. It feels forced, doesn't it? Actually, the word here means much more about a loving authority, a a kind authority in which people are delighted to live under and enabled and inspired by that kind of leadership. I've tried to define it as loving leadership. See, it's saying that God has made all people everywhere. The reason we were made was to show loving leadership. A loving leadership of such a quality that the people under it respond with praise and glory to us for what they've experienced. Do you see that there in sentence 7? You made them a little lower than the angels. You made them to have this ruling role, all human beings. And you crown them with glory and honour, that God sees how we lead, and he says that leadership deserves your honour, deserves for you to be praised. You're such a great, loving leader. It's right that you are praised for that. So just for a moment, pull into a lay-by for me and, and think for a moment about where you are called to have responsibility or influence. Every single one of us in this room right now will have an aspect of our life, some of us a number of them, where we have an influence or a responsibility that could broadly be described as leadership. Are you married or in a relationship of any description? Then both of you in that relationship have a responsibility to the other, don't you? To love and to lead in such a way that the response of your partner is to say, you deserve praise for that. I want to honour you because of the way that you've led and you've loved me. So let me talk to you husbands for a moment or you men in relationships for a moment. What kind of leadership and love are you showing your wives and your partners? Is it a leadership and love which is all self-focused and all about what you can get for yourself? Or is it a leadership and love which is so sacrificial and generous and caring for her that all she can do is from her heart say, I thank you and I praise you and I honour you and when I talk to my girlfriends about you, it is only good things I say. Or like the workplace, what kind of boss are you? What kind of parent or grandparent? Why do your children obey you? Thick ear, slip around the head, and they're they're very obedient, but they're obedient because of fear, slightly anxious about the response. Or actually, when they do do what they're told, however enough that might be, but they do it actually because somewhere in them, even at a child level, there's a delight and a confidence in your loving leadership over them. Does that make sense? They're honouring you, they're responding with, with honour, or at least so they can reflect back when they're adults and see that in their upbringing, even if at, at the age they're at, they're perhaps not able to process it right now. And when you get praise, and when you get honour, what drives it? Is it a voluntary response from your work colleagues and your employees and subordinates? Because of the type of boss you are? They're, they're quick, they want to say, he's a great boss. You've got on his team, oh, you're going to love it, well done. She's in charge of you? Or do they only say the right things at their annual appraisal with you? And then round the water cooler, down the pub after work, with the rest of the guys or the girls 
Oh, he's a right effing so-and-so, isn't he? God, I can't wait to get transferred to a different team, different unit. Do you see this flow that's being talked about here as it begins? And all of this, all of this concept that we're made to lovingly lead and we're made to lead in such a way, all of us, that the natural response is we'd be praised for that and that's to be exhibited in all of our life. All of this is found right at the beginning of the Bible. The, the Genesis, the initiation of this concept is the very first book of the Bible where we're told, Genesis 1.27, we're made in the image of God. Every single one of us made in the image of God. And therefore the loving leadership we give and the rightful praise we receive are a microcosm of what God is like as we image him. His perfect loving leadership over us. Our infinite praise of that leadership back to him. Displayed, imaged in all the human relationships we are part of. Sometimes offering the loving leadership, sometimes offering the rightful praise. Demonstrating God in all of that. Now if that is God's vision for what it means to be a human being loving leadership and rightful praise in a wonderful God-displaying dance. Doesn't the beginning, the end of sentence 8 make so much more sense? Yet, at present, we don't see it like this, do we? I mean, think about your parenting for a moment. Are your children delightfully saying, yes, mummy, yes, daddy, that's absolutely what I will do. My room is pristine because you asked, are they? Are they? Come on, someone help me out here. You're like, leave, thank you. Yeah? Or in the workplace, are you 100% certain that every one of the subordinates you're responsible for, or the soldiers in your unit that you're responsible for, or the, the part-time staff, or the zero-hour contracts people, whoever it is that you're responsible for in work, are you 100% confident that every single one of them would say, oh, she is a fantastic boss? You know, not when, you're list not when you're, your eyes over them, or the pay rise is in offer, but genuinely, so they're delighted to do what you say, because they say, loving leader, fantastic. We just know the world is not like this, don't we? Put it at the biggest scale, you know, as citizens of a country, this country or another, do our governments always rule us, just like God would rule us, with perfect love and perfect authority, so it's easy to praise Theresa May? It's easy to pray for Theresa May, isn't it? She has a really hard job. It is just not like this, is it? The sentence here at the end of sentence 8 there, yet we do not see this, describes our reality, does it? We do not see it like this at all. And so right there in Genesis, if we go back to the very concept of this, Genesis 1 is where it all started as we image God. By the time we get to Genesis 3, the third chapter of the Bible, it's all broken, it's all ruptured. Genesis 3.16 talks about marriage, meant to be the, the, the greatest microcosm of this dynamic of loving leadership and rightful praise. Marriage is meant to show it more than any other relationship. And we find Adam and Eve fresh from their honeymoon. Genesis 3.16, it said, Adam, you, you will want to rule your wife, and Eve, your desire will be for your husband. That word rule there is about as far from loving leadership as imaginable. It actually means violent force. There is a suggestion right there in the first marriage of domestic violence occurring. God hates that, by the way. If you're in that kind of relationship, if you are the receiver or giver of that, you need to do something about that this morning. You need to talk to me about it. If you're a receiver of that kind of verbal or physical abuse, I'll protect you with every ounce of who I am and if you are the doer of that then I'll sort you out in the most godly gospel way that is imaginable but it will be a sorting out because God has made you to be a better man or a better woman than that but right there in Genesis we see that occurring 
And the word desire about Eve, your desire will be for your husband, it's not sexual. It's her desire to have that kind of rule that Adam has. She wants to be the one who's forcing the praise and in charge and the boss. It's all broken, you see. And then by Genesis 3, 17 to 19, we read that the world itself, we were meant to be wonderful custodians of the world and carers of the world and the environment. Even that, by Genesis 3, is starting to reject and push against the corruption of people's rule. We're told in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, that for the first time, thorns and thistles grow. That the world itself is saying, humanity, you do not deserve my praise. The world itself is saying, get away from me. And thorns and thistles push up out of the ground to keep people away from the world because the loving leadership we're meant to show over our world, over God's creation that he made us custodians for, is so broken we pump chemicals into our atmosphere and we rip out natural resources from the earth in a way that's totally unsustainable. And this morning I picked up three bags of litter. Yesterday I picked up four bags of litter from our little park just on the edge of town. Because we cannot care for our world. It is all fractured and it's all broken. And so just for a moment, I want you to think this morning about yourself and about this frustrated dual identity. Do you see it in yourself? Forget your spiritual label again. Or, or a conversation you could have with your work colleague or at the school gate. This frustrated dual identity. That at some moments we see the glimmer and glimpses of the loving leaders we were made to be. That we're generous and kind and sacrificial in such a way that when someone says to us, well done, or just puts that hand on our shoulder and just says, great job, we know it is so deserved and so genuine. There's nothing better than that, is there? Real praise that is deserved, not empty platitudes. Real praise because of the job you've done. Like, yes, there's a reason we feel so good about that. It's what we were designed to do. Do you see that in yourself? But do you also see the other side? Not just the glory, but the garbage. Not just the potential, but the pain we cause. See the other side? Just speaking personally for a moment here, when I became a Christian, I, I first learned about Jesus and trusted Jesus when I was in my early 20s, 20 years old. And one of the things that really drew me to Jesus and what he said was for the first time, I'd bumped into someone who showed me what I knew to be true about myself. That showed me I was both jackal and hide that I was both glorious and garbage. I was both laden with potential and full of the ability to cause pain in equal measure. And Jesus told me why. Because of who I'd been made to be and because who I'd become as I turned away from God. Let's land on the third and final part of this paragraph, though. The one about Jesus. See, the remarkable thing, you see, is where we were made for this, we were made to do this, and yet it's not the world that we see and we live in, that Jesus, who was God himself, the one who did the making, became this. The one who was the, the son of God became a generic son of man to sort this problem out. Have a look at sentence nine. Let me read the whole sentence for you. But we do see Jesus. Everything else is chaos and confused and not as it should be, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, Jesus is crowned with honour and glory because his loving leadership extends even to his willingness to die. Do you see that? 
He is crowned. Do you see the sentence there? He is crowned. Why? Because he suffered death. He is given rightful praise. He is given rightful honour because his loving leadership is so complete and infinite, it even extends to him dying in our place for us. That Jesus lives perfectly as one one of us. Jesus dies fully consuming death for us. Jesus' loving leadership therefore deserves, rightfully, always, completely deserves rightful honour. We do see Jesus. If you like little analogies, it's a bit like saying, well, the window is broken. If we look out the window, we can't see the world as God wanted it to be. The window's broken. The mirror's broken. We look in the mirror, we don't see the person God intended us to be. But the telescope the telescope is working just fine. And we do see Jesus, just as God intended him to be, dying in our place for our rebellion, for that brokenness, and restoring it entirely. Now, where I want to land as we come into land this morning is on that last little phrase, the very last clause of sentence nine. One more look down at your Bibles, if you would, if you've got them there, would be, would be fantastic where it says uh, he's been crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. The reason he's given that glory and honour is because his loving leadership to death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, last week, I tried to explain that that little word taste, some of you are here, remember it, that little word taste, we think means like a little morsel. Do you remember this from last week? I talked about volivants last week, and far too many of you told me we should resurrect volivants from the 1980s and bring them into the present day. Anyway, like a little taster, a little appetizer type thing. Those little mushroom creamy ones were quite good, weren't they? But, you know, but the word taste there suggests to me like a little kind of mouthful, doesn't it? Or I said I'd gone down to the cheese and ale festival down in Stafford Town Centre, and you get those little cocktail sticks to taste the cheese, don't you? And I'm like, really? I'm a man. I need more cheese than that. You know, this tiny, tiny little morsel is what the word taste suggests. It's not the original word. The original word is much better translated consume, devour, polish off, scoff. He has consumed death. He's finished it entirely. There's there's nothing left. Last week I told you about Jonas and his epic spaghetti eating. You can ask about that if you weren't there last week. This week let me tell you about Gibbs, who is my mum and dad's pet dog. You'll get a chocolate bar if you can tell me the, 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 uh, the TV drama that the name Gibbs comes from afterwards. I've got a Mars bar for you if you know where Gibbs comes from. Shh, if you know, some of you know, shh. Anyway, this dog is a Labrador, a golden Labrador, 18 months old, and all Labradors just are led by their stomach. They eat absolutely everything, like car tires and horse manure and everything, don't they, Labradors? If you've got one, you know. Well, this is an extreme version, Gibbs is. And when our little dog, Buddy, who's a Cocker Spaniel and vastly more intelligent than my mum and dad's dog, right, but not very interested in food, right? Always leaves little bits in his crate, our dog does, like, you know, a bit of bit of dried dog food here or a bit of treat there. He's just not that interested in it, you know. This Labrador comes charging in, bowling over children, left, right and centre, like ten pins going finally, gets to this crate and is all over the crate, trying to find every tiny little morsel. And then one time when we were actually at their mum and, my, my mum and dad's house, this Labrador put its nose under this big crate and flipped it right on its side for this tiny, like, half-chewed bit of Kimball right in the corner, and then its tongue's like over the kitchen floor, like, like, like some giant African slug has kind of gone all across the kitchen floor. That, you'd use the word here, translated taste unhelpfully, to describe that dog. That dog scoffs a lot, consumes everything, devours it all. Now, last week I wanted to labor home the point that actually Jesus, if you're willing, will eat your death meal, every last crumb of it. He will say, move over, Simon. Judith, move over. 
I'm going I'm to consume it. So there is no death left for you. And move the experience of death from an end to a gateway. In C.S. Lewis's language, the experience of death simply concludes the foreword of the greatest novel ever written. And as you die, this great scribe picks up the pen and begins chapter one of the real story of your life. That's what death becomes if you let Jesus consume it for you. He's willing. That's why it says everyone at the end, the last word of our paragraph, everyone, whoever you are. But this morning I want to labour not the word everyone, but the word crowned. Do you see it there? He's crowned. Why is Jesus crowned? Why is he crowned with glory and honour? Because he suffered death. Because his loving leadership took him from heaven as the creator of the universe to the squalor of a borrowed stable, to the stench of a used feeding trough, to the splinters of a carpenter's desk, to the pain of nails through the bones of his wrists and ankles, and to the coldness of a grave. That's loving leadership. That deserves praise and honor and glory. And friends, not just with our lips, but with our lives. That actually, as we start to live, we start to say, I want to show this loving leadership of Jesus in my loving leadership. I now have a perfect husband to imitate as I husband my wife. I now have the perfect boss to imitate as I have employees and subordinates to look after. I now have the perfect parent and brother to follow as I try and be a parent, brother, aunt and uncle to others. He becomes our great model, role model of loving leadership, of what it means to live in this world in the way we were designed to be. And we sing his praise with our lips, but we live his praise with our lives, don't we? I'm going to give us a minute before I pray for us, and I want you to consciously think about the various arenas of your life, the soldiers you work alongside, the staff you manage, the family God has given you, the relationships, friends or otherwise, that you have. I want to think about the praise and honour you receive in those relationships and whether it is truly given to you from a willing heart by others or whether there's an element where your force of words or strength of body or position in the organisation or the family means that you can demand it. And I want you to think about your loving leadership in those environments as a mother as a husband, as a friend. Is it truly loving leadership? Mimicking Jesus's? I'm going to sing a, another song after I've prayed, and then there'll be a moment if anyone would like to share from the front what God has been saying to them this morning. We create this space every now and again. Uh, just take 30 seconds from the front if you want to share what God has just underlined to encourage others um, as we seek him together. While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us, says Romans 5 verse 9. That is true loving leadership. 
That is the fullest extent of loving leadership, not simply dying for a friend or a family member, but dying for an enemy so that they might live. Jesus, we thank you so much that your loving leadership is so extensive and expansive that it stretches even to consume our death for each and every one of us. I thank you for the role model and example of loving leadership that therefore gives each and every one of us in our own lives. And I thank you for the privilege of being able to respond to your great love and great leadership with praise and honor and glory that is rightfully yours through our lips and through our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your work through your word this morning and the husbands among us and the wives among us and the parents among us and in the workplace and in friendship groups that, Spirit, you would make us the loving leaders you designed us to be and in Jesus are restoring us to be. And we would no longer be satisfied with the mere mundane complacency of a mediocre and successful life and instead exchange it for something of real, lasting significance. Oh, yeah, Jesus, I really do pray that we would not fear, fall for the trickery of a successful life, the folly of a successful life. And we would pursue you for a life that is significant because it is Jesus-like. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing. And then, as I say, we'll have just a, a few moments if folk would like to share anything to encourage others.